We live in a pretty wonderful and marvelous age. Things we know today that past generations would have truly marveled at. One of them is to think that now it's possible through ultrasounds to be able to ascertain the sex of a child while it's still in the mother's womb. Many in this room didn't have that opportunity. You had to wait and see till the child was born, whether it was going to be a male or a female. Now it's quite commonplace to ask a young woman that's pregnant, do you know the sex of your child? Do you want to know? Some people want to know so they can prepare and get ready for the birth, and others want to be surprised and want to wait till the child is born. But today, you have that opportunity to make that decision that past generations knew nothing of. Let me ask you, let's suppose that it was impossible to invent a machine that you could walk through and it would reveal to you all the circumstances of your death. You would know when you're going to die. You would know where you're going to die. And you would know all the circumstances surrounding that death. Would you want to know? Would you like to have that printed out for you so you can carry it around in your pocket in case you forget, you can whip it out and say, oh yes, that's the date, that's when I'm going to die. It's going to be under these circumstances. I mean, who would really want to know that? Don't you think that would be a burden? Don't you think that would be a hardship to carry? When we think about our Lord Jesus Christ, the Scripture makes it clear that He understands Everything about his death before it takes place. In John chapter 18, verse 4, in our text this morning, it says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him. Jesus, knowing everything that was going to come upon him. Jesus being completely aware, fully, of all the attending circumstances of his death. Pinhard has said, and I quote, What rendered Christ's sufferings most terrible was the perfect knowledge of the torments that he should endure. From the earliest moments of his life, he had present to his mind the betrayal, scourging, thorns, and cross that he was to bear. The scripture makes it absolutely clear that the day that he chose Judas to be a disciple, Jesus was very much aware that Judas was going to betray him. Can you imagine eating meals with Judas for three years, fellowshipping with him, talking with him, hearing of all of Judas's feigned love for Jesus, and to know what Judas was going to do? Can you imagine being aware of all the circumstances surrounding your death? But let's take it a step further. Imagine... Imagine you walk through this machine 
And it told you of all the attending circumstances surrounding your death. And it's going to be a hideous death. It's going to be a dreadful death. It's going to be a hard death. It's going to be a death that you would wish on no one. And further, you understood that this was God's will for your life. This is what God wanted for you. But, not only is there a machine that can tell you what you're going to face, there is a magic potion that you can take that will control the outcome of these events. There's a potion that you can take that can change the circumstances of your death. It doesn't have to be as painful. It doesn't have to be as agonizing. It doesn't have to be as dreadful. It doesn't have to be as difficult as it's foretold. But it also would be in violation of the will of God. You think there might be a temptation to take things in your own hands? A temptation to say, no, I don't want that to happen. I don't, I don't want that to be my experience. Well, we find out Jesus was sorely tempted. He was in the garden. And he prayed and he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go through this. But he also said, not my will, but thine be done. Not only did Jesus know all the attending circumstances of his death, but he had absolute, complete control over all those circumstances that attended his death. Our call to worship this morning from John chapter 10, verse 17 said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received of my Father. Jesus has complete power and authority over his death. As we look at John chapter 18, the key verse is verse 11. Jesus therefore said to Peter, Put the sword unto the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? The cup that the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? This painful death that fulfills the plan and will of God. Should I not follow it? Is the question of Jesus. As we look at the synoptic gospels, it's always interesting in the narratives as to what they include and what they exclude. John often varies from the other synoptic gospels in its inclusions and its exclusions. There are some things in this passage that are not even alluded to, such as Jesus' prayer in the garden that I already mentioned. It's not found in the book of John. Not that it didn't happen. It just isn't significant to the account for John. No mention of the disciples' sleepiness and unwillingness to watch and pray with Jesus in the John account. No betrayal of Jesus by Judas's kiss in the John account. What is interesting in the John account is what it includes that the other accounts don't. Two primary things. 
One, the statement that Jesus makes concerning this cup, should he not drink it? And the other, having said that, let these disciples go, that it may be filled that not one of them was lost. So we want to focus this morning on the account that's given to us in John, and specifically the purpose that this account is given to us in John, and that is to meditate on Jesus' willing acceptance and fulfillment of God's plan for his life. Verse 11. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? This morning we want to look at three things that demonstrate Jesus' willing acceptance of the plan of God and its significance. First, we know that Jesus willingly accepts and fulfills God's plan for his death because of Jesus' response to Judas' plan to betray him. Look with me at John 18, verses 1 and 2. John 18, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered and his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place where Jesus had often met there with his disciples. The narrative opens following the closing scene in the upper room, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words. These words are the words of comfort and instruction that Jesus gives during the Passover meal. And these words are the words that Jesus then offers in prayer in John chapter 17. He had the Passover meal and he prayed for his disciples and future followers in John chapter 17. And when that prayer is ended, they now leave the upper room and they travel to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas had already left and was in the process of betraying Jesus, verse 2. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, and uh, the significance there is of, of the verb tense, who was betraying him. Judas was already in the process of betraying Jesus. Jesus had dismissed Judas from the Passover meal. Jesus had said to Judas, what you do, do quickly. Disciples didn't know what that meant. Judas did. Jesus did. And he went out to betray Jesus. And uh, made a deal with the chief priests for 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus into their hands alone. Judas now comes to the place where Jesus was. Verse 3. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Came there. Where? To the Garden of Gethsemane. To the place where Jesus was. How did Judas know where Jesus would be? How did he know where to find Jesus on that fateful night? They had no prearranged meeting point. He didn't say to, to Judas, meet me in the Garden of Gethsemane at 11 o'clock. How did Judas know where to find him? Verse 2 tells us. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place where Jesus had often met there with his disciples. He knew where Jesus would go. He knew where Jesus would be. He knew where he'd spend the night, for he spent the night often there when they were spending the night on the Mount of Olives. He didn't need anyone to tell him. 
He knew where Jesus would be. Notice those that Judas brought with him. It says in verse 3, Judas said, have received a Roman cohort. A Roman cohort. A Roman cohort consisted of 700 infantrymen and usually 250 cavalry. Now, did he really come with 700 troops and 250 cavalrymen? I don't know. But the parallel account in Matthew 26, verse 47 says, And while he had spoke, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude. A great multitude. This was quite a mob that showed up to arrest Jesus. I think it might well have been a full cohort. It might well have been 700 infantrymen and 250 men on horseback. Might well have been. And notice what they brought with them. They came prepared. For it says in verse 3, they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. Lanterns and torches and weapons. Why? To find Jesus. It was dark. They had torches not only to light their ways, but, but lanterns to spread light as best they could over a distance. You see, they were anticipating they were going to have to find Jesus. They were going to have to hunt for him. He could be hiding in a tree somewhere. Seeing this great multitude come. I mean, they, they weren't going to catch him by great surprise. A thousand men, 700 on, on foot, 250 on, on horse, lanterns, weapons. They weren't going to take him by surprise. So, they were ready to do an exhaustive search which would have been one of the reasons for such a large group. Because they're going to have to find Jesus. That's what they anticipated. That's what they expected. But, Jesus makes absolutely no attempt to hide. In fact, quite the opposite. Look at John 18, verse 4. Jesus went out to the crowd. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, He met them. He didn't hide from them. I love musicals. One of my favorite musicals is The Sound of Music. And when I read this passage, I can't help but think of, of uh, the family von Trapp as they are hid out in the monastery uh, trying to hide from uh, the Nazi forces that they're going to come and take them. And they are trembling. And they are doing everything they can to obscure their presence. So that they won't be caught and found. And Captain Von Trapp taken away and have to serve in the military. Not so here. Jesus goes out to meet them. Matthew Henry says this, and I quote, When the people would have forced him, that is Jesus, to take a crown and wish to make himself a king, he hid himself. But when it came to force him to the cross, he offered himself willingly. He hid from the crowd when they wanted to make him king. He came out to the crowd when they wanted to, take, to crucify him. Jesus was not taken by surprise 
Verse 4 says, knowing all things that were coming upon him. Knowing all things that were coming upon him. The Judas didn't know what to expect. The chief priests didn't know what to expect. The Roman cohort didn't know what to expect. They didn't know what they were going to find when they came to arrest Jesus. And I imagine there was a bit of fear and trepidation on their part when they thought about going out and arresting this man. Again, I think that is one of the reasons that they have such a huge number. A thousand people. It shows a certain amount of respect for Jesus. They better go armed. They better go ready. They better go prepared. And at the same time, it shows a disrespect for Jesus. Because if he didn't want to be arrested, what was a thousand troops going to mean? If he really was going to resist, what could they possibly have done? So it's one of those strange things. On the one hand, they honor him, and on the other hand, they dishonor him. And that's so often true with the unsaved mind. On one hand, Christ is honored, and on the other hand, Christ is dishonored. He's viewed as a good man, he's viewed as a prophet, but he's not viewed as the Son of God, he's not viewed as a Savior. He's lifted up and he's knocked down. But we find only in the Word of God, of course, that Jesus is exalted. And he is exalted because he gives himself willingly. How do we know that Jesus gives himself willingly? Well, because of the power that Jesus displays over the soldiers. Look at verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to him, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. It would have been at this point that Judas would have kissed Jesus on the cheek. Verse 5. They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. When therefore he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is unique to the Gospel of John. None of the other synoptic accounts refer to these soldiers going back and falling to the ground. But it is tremendously significant. This is one of the I am statements of Jesus. The I am is a reference to To the name of God. He said, I am. And they drew back and fell to the ground. I am is the name Jehovah or Yahweh. We don't even know how to pronounce God's name. Whether it's Jehovah or whether it's it's Yahweh. Because we don't know what vowel sounds go with it. We know the consonants. It's known as the tetragrammaton. So we know the consonants of the word Jehovah or, or Yahweh, but we don't know the vowels. And the reason we don't know the vowels is because it's been lost over, over centuries and centuries of time. For in the Old Testament, it says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so the, the Jewish rabbis reasoned that if you never said God's name, it would be impossible to take it in vain. So they never pronounced Yahweh or Jehovah. In fact, when they read the Old Testament scriptures, 
when they came to the name Jehovah or Yahweh and they were reading the scriptures publicly, they would uh, substitute Adonai, which means Lord. And they would say Adonai instead of Jehovah or Yahweh. So today, we don't even know how God's name is pronounced, whether it's Jehovah or whether it's Yahweh. But we know what it means. We know what it means. It's the verb to be. That's why it says I am. The verb to be. I am. That's who I am. I am. Meaning that he is the self-existent one. He exists by himself. He is the creator. Everything else is the created. He is dependent upon no one. Everything else is dependent upon him. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. One of the favorite titles for Jesus in the book of John is I Am. That name was revealed in the Old Testament at the burning bush to Moses. Moses is in the wilderness and he looks and behold, he sees something that is absolutely amazing. He sees a, fire, a bush that's on fire, but the bush isn't consumed. Here's a bush. It's not turning to ash. It's not withering. It's not drying up. It's not being consumed in any fashion. And there's a fire in it. And Moses turns aside to look at this bush. And God speaks to him out of this bush. And of course gives him that great responsibility of leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses says, Who am I to say that I've spoken to? Who am I to say has sent me to Egypt? Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel. And shall I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you? Now they will say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. Jehovah, Yahweh has sent you. I am the self-existent one. You see the picture? Here's this burning bush. It's not consumed because the fire isn't dependent upon the bush for its existence. If I build a fire in the fireplace, I watch the wood be burned up because the fire draws its existence from the wood. It needs the wood in order to endure. When all the wood is consumed, the fire goes out. The burning bush was not consumed because the, the fire was not dependent upon the bush for its existence. He is self-existent. He is the I Am. It is only fitting that Jesus reveals himself at the very time that they are coming to take him, to put him to death as the self-existent one. Who do you come looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And they went back and they fell down. They fell down. They, they fell to their knees. They fell to their knees. Here is a clear declaration. 
that Jesus is the Son of God, and it's a foreshadowing of the time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's going to come that time. As I said, this isn't the first time that Jesus was revealed as the I Am in the book of John. Early, or in John chapter 8, Jesus said, Verily, verily, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews took up stones to stone him because they understood what he was saying. They took up stones to stone him for blasphemy because he was saying that he was the Son of God, making himself equal with God. And so, here is Jesus saying, I am, and the whole guard goes back and falls to their knees. And so, verse 7, he repeats the question. Again, therefore, he asked them, Whom do you seek? What do you say now, boys? Now, who do you think I am? I asked him the first time, Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. Down the go. Now, who do you seek? He's given them an opportunity to say, The Son of God. The I am. It was a direct confrontation with these soldiers. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. But notice, Jesus willingly accepts and fulfills God's plans for his death, as seen in Jesus' not losing one of his disciples. So, Jesus dismisses disciples, verse 7. Again, therefore, he asked them, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. This seems like a, a scene from a movie that we've all seen. You know, a, a crowd comes out against an innocent bystander. Jesus being the innocent party. And they have followers. And so the person says, who are you looking for? And the crowd says, you. And then the perpetrator says, well, then let all these others go. Your beef is with me. Your problem is with me. You're not interested in them. Let them go. You're not looking for them. You're not looking for their followers. Who are you looking for? Working for Jesus of Nazareth. That's me. You let these men go. But there's something so much more profound than this. There is something so much more glorious than this. This isn't the pitiful plea of an innocent man that says, if you have to take me, take me. But by all means, let my followers go. This is actually an edict. A decree from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I am he. Now you let these men go. Don't you touch these men. You seek me. 
Now there's something incredibly striking in this passage. Verse 8. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. Verse 9. That the word might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom thou hast given me, I lost not one. Jesus said this to fulfill what was already mentioned in the high priestly prayer of John 17, verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name which thou hast given me. I guarded them that not one of them perished but the son of perdition. Not one of them was going to die. There's the decree. There's the edict. Let these men go. Now, Jesus had just said this. You've got to picture this. You know, one of these things about these narratives, and one of the things I do, whenever I study a narrative in the, in the Scripture, I read it and reread it, and then I close my eyes and I envision it. It really helps me to, to visualize what's going on. Because it comes to life for me. And I, and I see things much more clearly in my mind's eye. So, picture with me. Jesus goes out to meet this crowd. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Boom. They go back and fall down. They get back up. Jesus says, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Then let these men go. Aside, in fulfillment of the prophecy that he would not lose one. You know what happens next? Peter takes out his sword and strikes the ear of Malchus and cuts it off. Look at 18 verse 10. Simon Peter then having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's slave. Now picture this. It's night. It's dark. It's a confrontation. We have 700 soldiers on foot. We have 250 soldiers on horseback. We have chief priests. We have a confrontation. Already these soldiers have been taken back because when they said, when Jesus said, I am he, they fell back. They had to come back again. And Jesus says, let these men go. And then all of a sudden, Simon Peter draws his sword lunges forward and strikes the ear of Malchus. You know what's incredible? How did Peter ever survive that? With a thousand soldiers, how could he have ever even gotten that sword out? Let alone to lunge forward and to strike it without somebody immediately striking Peter dead. How could that happen? It's the divine protection of God. Why would they ever let Peter go? Why was he arrested? Why was he put on trial? Why did they let Peter just walk away? 
the scripture says it's fulfillment of the statement that of all that you've given to me, I will lose none. It's a picture of the <coughs> salvation that Jesus provides. This one who is going to die in order to spare his own through his death spares and preserves and keeps them. And so, remarkably, miraculously, Jesus says to Peter, put up your sword. Peter immediately obeys. The soldiers realize that there's not going to be any resistance here. Jesus reaches down, picks up the ear of Malchus, and puts it back on his head. It's not in our text. It's in the parallel account. And he heals him. Wow. All a foreshadowing how Jesus rights our wrongs. Makes our disobedience obedience. Takes upon himself the consequences for our sin, our actions. All of this in the setting of the Garden of Gethsemane. Conclusion. So what are we to learn from this passage? First, Jesus lived the entirety of his life in full knowledge of his death and attending circumstances. His whole life, he lived in that knowledge. Secondly, Jesus <coughs> Jesus had complete control over all attending circumstances of his, of his life. And he never, ever, never, ever deviated from the plan, will, and desire of God. Jesus picks Judas to be a disciple, knowing that Judas is going to betray him. Three years earlier, he doesn't depart from the plan and will of God. He goes up to Jerusalem knowing they're going to arrest him. He doesn't depart from the plan and will of God. He goes to a garden where Judas expects him to go. He doesn't depart from the plan and will of God. So often, the difficulty is not in knowing the will of God. It's simply in doing it. Simply in doing it. Never in the same way but in a lesser way. You may be called upon to die a difficult death. We live in a culture and society that wants to take all of that in our own hands. Doesn't want to submit to God's will for our life. Wants to have control over how I die and to die painlessly. 
to die without any suffering, die without any hardship, and to die without any testimony. Are we willing to accept the plan and will of God for our lives? Not as clearly revealed by any means. But the day may come in which it becomes pretty apparent how I'm going to die and it may not be the most pleasant. Am I ready to accept the plan and will of God knowing that maybe God will use that in the salvation of someone else. Maybe God will use that as a testimony. Am I willing to use my death as a means of honoring and glorifying God? Jesus certainly did. But Jesus had control over the circumstances of his death in ways that we never will. And we should marvel one, that he submits to the plan and will of God. Secondly, he takes no vengeance. He takes no vengeance. Not one soldier dies that night. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That doesn't mean forgive them for all eternity. That doesn't mean save them. That means don't strike them dead for what they're doing to me. They deserve it, but don't do that. Judas comes up and kisses Jesus on the cheek. As a feigned follower of Jesus, in order to show the soldiers who Jesus really is. He didn't even need to do that. Jesus is prepared to tell them who he is. But he kisses Jesus. Jesus doesn't even slap him. Jesus doesn't even say, how dare you? Jesus does not retaliate in any degree to any of his malefactors. Even to the point of simply refusing to call them names. In accepting the plan of God, Jesus becomes the Savior. He's our Savior. And it's pictured for us in this garden. And the main lesson from John chapter 18 that we're to take away, which is unique to this gospel which is unique to this account. The thing that, that should be ever foremost in our mind, because it's only found here, is that Jesus preserves the lives of his disciples. And Peter isn't killed. Because Jesus gives an edict, let him go. And even after that edict... When he says, let him go, and Peter reaches out his sword and strikes off the ear of Malchus, it still doesn't result in Peter's death. Because Jesus is in the control of the situation. And because Jesus had come to give these men life. And typologically, he shows, I am able to give them life. 
I am able to preserve them. And we learn today, He's able to preserve us. He's able to give us eternal life. He died willingly, powerfully, to save us. That was God's plan. And He accepted it. And He accomplished it. And He fulfilled it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the plan of salvation. We thank you that through Jesus' death we can have life. And we thank you that Jesus willingly accepted and fulfilled that plan. Though he was well aware of all the attending circumstances, he did nothing to thwart it. Although he had great powers to overcome any that would take his life, he chose to lay it down of his own initiative. Which means it was so precious to you as he obediently served you. In his death. He did it for you. And he did it for us. To preserve us. So that not a single one would perish. Lord, thank you for the salvation that we enjoy. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.